0: This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by another one-heat-minute production, Increment Vice, a 45-episode exegesis podcast on Paul Thomas Anderson's 2014 masterpiece based on the Thomas Pynchon novel, Inherent Vice, Increment Vice, hosted by Travis Woods. We've got an incredible narrator in Cat Corbett. I, myself, Blake Howard, produced the show. We're incredibly proud of everything that we've discussed and every guest that has been featured and every conversation that has been had, every sprawling deep dive into this kind of effortless stone and noir. And if you haven't checked it out you simply must it is an excellent show and it's a real it's a real vibe it really ties the room of One Hit Minute Productions together Uh, get listening and why are we so emphatically proud of this show this episode particularly well we've got Travis Woods coming back here he is to chat with us right now
1: Democracy works. That's what came out of the overall story of Watergate. Investigative journalism works. In fact, investigative journalism, I think, was invented then. And Peter is an ex-investigative journalist. No man, and certainly not the president, is above the law. He has to be accountable.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All The President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me is one of my very, very favorite people, and particularly one of my very favorite people to talk to on podcasts, talk to over Zoom calls, talk to over Skype, talk to over DM. That's how you talk to your internet husband, and that is how I talk to mine. It is the 130th episode of this show about Alan J. pickle and Robert Redford's 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men, and It is his second appearance back because it feels like any show that I do that is good has him on it twice. One kind of toward the earlier part of the film, one very close to the death and in a pivotal scene. Because if there's a man that knows anything about government conspiracies and the omnipresence of the golden fang, it is the host of One Heat Minute Productions, incredible and now completed epic increment vice. It is the equally epic writer at Bright Wall Dark Room and editor, but particularly if you read his stuff, the breadth is insane, particularly his over 10,000-word treatise (laughs) of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is just unfathomably brilliant. And also contributed to one of the other great, uh, I guess you'd call it internet movie resources, uh, Cinephilia and Beyond. It is my dear friend, Travis Woods. Travis, welcome back to All the President's Minutes.
1: Uh you know, I say the same thing, I think, every time I come on one of your shows, which is just Jesus Christ. Uh, but again, Jesus Christ, like you and your uh, you and your intros. Well, first off, let me just say that once upon a time at Hollywood piece is only 9000 words. Oh, sorry. It's not like I'm some chatty <laughs> Kathy over here. Uh, it's only 9000 uh, so, Sorry, I, mean,
0: I must have heard about the editor, the the pre-final yeah, cut wow. version that yeah. came over the over the there's, word count.
1: There's there's like an eleven thousand, fifteen thousand <laughs> uh, novella version out there that no one's gonna ever see. Uh, yeah, but you guys, you got me sounding like I'm a real uh, jibber jabbering uh, fool over here. I keep things concise for the most part, if you ignore the fact that yeah, I've released like forty five two hour episodes of um, a show talking about inherent vice. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, by the way, I just finished and was really re- like, I had Johnny Utah Dirty Harried my badge into the sea. I was done. I was mm. walking away, mm-hmm. and uh, here I am. It's just, it's like, uh, it's like Dirty Harry coming back in Magnum Force. You thought he was done. <laughs> you're throwing away the badge. Uh, I thought I was done with this guy. He's, he's
0: not coming back. You 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 say you were Johnny Utah? I was Johnny Utah walking off the beach, and you were just boating. I guess that's true. You were just boating I, you know, going out there, the hundred-year storm is not you know, coming not, back. Uh,
1: I mean, this is probably as far afield as you can get from all the president's men. But I would say, I would not say no to a point break. Don't start mentioning. I would not. Don't say
0: start that mentioning that future
1: show truly, ideas. Truly, truly a. Up masterpiece. Don't one start of, one mentioning greatest, show one ideas live on air. Chase. This one of the is, greatest foot chase scenes in cinema history. Travis, stop. This
0: is this is for us uh, off air. I know <laughs> point break point break is going to happen. We know, oh, wow, that it's, gonna, we know it's gonna know that. we know it's gonna we know it's happening in the future. There's so many great show ideas that we have together. That's just one <laughs> of them. That's just one. You know we I were, like it. You know we would love to talk about Point Break. I mean, I don't think there's – there was no more seminal as a, a movie text than Point Break for my hometown, which is – Oh, yeah, because the I
1: was under, in, yeah, well,
0: in your neck no, of the woods. Yeah, no, I mean, not just for Melbourne, but, I mean, the growing up in a surf town called Kilcare on the central coast of New South Wales, which is about an hour and a half north of Sydney, and, you know, like my life, especially in, in the primary school days and early high school days was literally wake up in the morning, go to school, come home, drop everything in the house, all of your uniform, everything like that, grab your board shorts and your surfboard and jump on your bike and ride because everyone lived close to the beach, ride down to the beach to meet your mates, to surf until the sun went down and then go home. And you, you couldn't go to someone's house and not watch Point Break. It
1: was the text. It was the text. And- well, I mean, it's a perfect film. I mean, it's it's and it's after what, like the Terminator. It's maybe cinema's greatest love story. Um, it's certainly, um, it is certainly maybe more than any other film. The movie that when I'm watching it, I just scream at the screen. Just fuck already. <laughs> um, like they'd both be so happy if they would. Uh, and and I'm I'm. <laughs> I'm chuckling now because I'm thinking of all the poor saps that started this episode going, all right, I'm going to hear, hear a little bit about uh, some hopefully incisive commentary about uh, all the president's men. And now I'm talking about, they're hearing me talk about Bodie and Johnny Utah uh, reconciling their differences uh, uh, through lovemaking. But I will say, I will say. To try to pivot us back to point poor Blake's eyes are just glazing over with terror you know I'm not
0: you know I'm, see, I'm, I'm staring the, I'm into the, the abyss now. I'm staring now, I'm staring into the abyss of your eyes and I know that in there is a ferocious podcast host who knows how this game works no, and I'm see, just I'm I'm, I'm I'm
1: I'm very relaxed I'm, I'm out of the game now brother so I don't care anymore so I'm just I'm talking about Bodie and Utah having sex on an all the president's men podcast but I will say imagine Imagine a 1976 version of Point Break with uh, Robert Redford as Bodie, Dustin Hoffman as uh, Johnny Utah, Jason Robards as Angelo Busey. Pappas. You see. Yeah. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to everyone listening. I don't really know where I'm going with this right now. Um, Robards yeah. really could sell that. Like. Give me two. Give me two hot dogs. But yeah, but he'd be so much more laconic about it. Give me two. Give me two, Utah. I got it. again. I'm so sorry to everyone listening at home. You, you can know, tell, like I, I'm definitely in my retired detective mode. Uh now that I've left increment vice where I've know, got the full beard. Who,
0: who like is the guy, the guy? Who's the guy in liner. who's the guy in Scrubs? I always forget his name. He's in point break.
1: The angry uh, John uh, was it John McGinley?
0: Yeah. John McGinley.
1: Yeah. yeah. Cur- you know, a fellow curly haired rage addict like myself.
0: Yeah. Jack Warden could crush the John McGinley role. <laughs> Jack Warden, Oh, gosh. John McGinley owes everything about how his ability to scream at people to Jack Warden. Jack Warden screaming at people is a masterpiece in and of itself. Just see Norm MacDonald's very hilarious and underrated and really hard actually to see sometimes dirty work um, where <laughs> they just get him to play this angry dad um, screaming at both Norm and uh, and, and <laughs>
1: his brother Artie Lang. Um,
0: but Yeah, look, we've gone very wow, far. We we've, got,
1: we've gone to art. We, now that we've <laughs> you know, we've hit the bottom when we're talk when we're like, well, you know, what's already already laying up to in the <laughs> middle of an, all the presidents all the presidents men podcast. My look, god.
0: No. What what everyone doesn't realize is that Travis Travis was tired. He did an incredible thing. He finished a huge. <laughs> Travis kinetic.
1: was tired.
0: Yeah, he's tired. He finished an incredible project. And just like me, at the end of One Heat Minute, there was a time where you are tired and you feel fulfilled and you finish something. Um, But what happens is uh use you know in the words of vincent hannah you're out there just on the edge you know where i gotta be and what happens is the itch comes back it will come back and we'll find a project for us to continue to do and i know that you're very keen on our future project for one eight minute productions which is coming up in december which is zodiac chronicle which you'll be a part of and maybe more than once and maybe more than twice um because it will be a 24 episode series because the guests are lining up so much that even if i wanted to have two just a minimum of two guests per episode um, we may have to go more, so it might even be two to three guests an episode, depending on how the show is going to go. Um, unpacking uh, the different sequences of Zodiac together, so you know there's 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 going to be time, and there'll be future projects and lots of little fun things we can do together.
1: You know, it's interesting that you mention uh, that you that, that you mentioned Zodiac there uh, because you're such a professional. You're already laying the track to plug your next show. Bless your heart, you're such a professional at this. But um, it is interesting that you mentioned Zodiac, and not just because we're in the middle of a weekend in which David Fincher has just gone, uh, just dropped three weapons-grade level hot takes on the internet
0: <laughs> you um, sure
1: over, over a twenty-four hour period. Uh, but it, it, what's interesting to me, uh, you know, talking about Fincher, talking about Zodiac, is how much I feel like this movie, maybe more than anything else in pop cinema all the president's men really seems like the crucial text the formative text in that man's career uh i think that you can really connect an electrified kite string from all the president's men to what zodiac is and Definitely. i feel like and again we're just going we're going from Artie lang to david fincher here but uh i i feel like uh, you know gosh, we are, we're we're doing an episode of Zodiac now, but I feel like David Fincher is not an auteur, which is a kind of a silly word anyway. He's less an auteurist than he is an aestheticist.
0: Yes. And
1: I think that his aesthetic is the gradual accretion of information, which is why I think Zodiac is his best film because I think that that's the really the only theme that truly... Fascinates him as a storyteller is the accretion of information, and so Zodiac is a film about the accretion of information that is delivered via the accretion of information. We're just going to see how many times I can get away with saying accretion <laughs> of information on a single show. That's cool. but that, that is, you know, I was rewatching all the President's Men this weekend for this show, and it really did struck me, strike me, struck me, Jesus, it really <laughs> did strike me how much this film really is just a Gangbang of, of exposition and info drops, and it's almost—I don't want to call it plotless, but it's—it's it's vaguely structureless, or at the very least, *All the President's Men* is not a uh, does not feel like a five-act film to me or a three-act film. It reminds me—and boy, you can tell I'm tired because I'm just grabbing at whatever pop culture <laughs> errata. Is in the junk drawer of my brain right now, but um, in Nolan's The Dark Knight series, um, the Tumblr, the Batmobile, the, the, the Batman drives. If you notice, the engine is always upshifting in, eternally. There's never a downshift or a leveling off. It's just constantly rep, uh, uh, ramming and revving up with this high-pitched whine, and that's kind of what all the president's men is structured like. It's just a constant ascent into more and more and more and more information, and uh, I'm a film noir guy and I think I can follow confusing plots pretty well despite being you know a student of this incident uh, and really fascinated in it uh, uh, or with it and having seen this film a million times I still don't know what's going on through most of it and what <laughs> yeah. they're referring to
0: it's, it's, I, it's a great trick it's one of the greatest tricks that it appears structuralist yet has a like a such a precise structure and that it and it lures you into the trick every time. So some people's criticism of it is, and, and this was actually, uh, uh, voiced as a criticism on this show. So the true, the Hollywood reporter, um, TV critic, Ingo Kang joined us for the show and she said, I can, I, I, I wasn't really buying these guys making consolations out of random dots. And I thought that that was a beautiful turn of phrase in that, no, that's the trick. That's exactly what I love. I love that these guys are making constellations out of random dots, and and the trick is that every single time, the lack of predictability in the way that the next breakthrough comes to them, whether it's an open door or a twice open door or a or uh, you know a, a friend having to speak to their old fiance or a canuck letter as a line of flirtation that comes to one of their colleagues or whatever the case may be, it's that random that that constellation that starts to form in these random dots that like is so beautiful because it's not just step by step by step by step by step. It is literally bang, bounce, 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 and then here we be, here we are. And it, there's there's something so I don't know, there's something divine about that in the way that it's well, structured. Sure.
1: And and then it that wasn't me criticizing it by saying it's structureless. It's just more that it's it's just one it's it's like it's one act that just goes on for two hours and 18 minutes or whatever it is. And it's just a constant ascent it's a constant revving up um, and even the ending it doesn't really end it just kind of stops because at some point the movies just got uh, to end and to speak to that what I that's one of my favorite things about the film though is the all of these dots and then that the eventual constellation you know obviously some stuff. this the film had to be condensed so we couldn't see them all we couldn't see all of the little dots that they had to go through to finally find the constellation but what I found was, so interesting and kind of terrifying, and I mentioned this a little bit the first time I was on is that you know Woodward and Bernstein at the time they were they were just two cubbies you know they were, they were they were the boys, they were the kids, they were nobodies. Uh, Bernstein was going to get fired last month. Woodward's <laughs> only been on this thing, only been working for the post for uh, nine months, and then it was writing about rat shit in restaurants, and um, the idea. The idea that, you know, what's the Bradley saying that, Grayson, you know, uh, you know, all the only thing that's writing on the line here is the first amendment uh, you know, uh, of the United States and the United States future. Constitution and then maybe the future <laughs> of democracy itself. So you know, try not to fuck this up. <laughs> and it's in the hands of these two cubby reporters who every time they get a dot, and then one of my favorite things about the film is every time they get a dot, they're just as confused as we are. They're like, well, what the fuck is this? You know, like, you know, when uh, what is it in the, I, the scene that I did earlier when um, Woodward's making calls about Howard Hunt and he's he's like and the guy's like well you know he works for the CIA and how like yeah Woodward's jaw just drops and he's like yes he did work for the <laughs> CIA and all of a sudden it's like well what the hell does that mean now and we're not asking that he's asking that and um, I think it's an interesting portrayal of two. And again, it's it's you know I, I compared this film to a detective film the first time I was on it's that detectives that instinct where you know there is a constellation you're not entirely sure what it is but you know there is one yes. and so you just keep grabbing at the dots and drawing lines and hoping you'll connect and, you know not to disagree with with uh, with a critic but I do think that. This whole, f- show, this whole
0: this yeah. whole show functionally is about actively disagreeing with critics
1: but i, I do think <laughs> that i do think that the film does go out of its way to show them making mistakes and yeah. drawing the wrong lines yeah. and so that by the time that they do kind of figure out what the constellation is it's they've it's it's been a process of elimination where they've drawn other constellations or tried to figure out what the other ones could be and it's only at the end after the scene we're going to talk about today uh you know when woodward has that very chilling line when you understand its implications when he's talking to bradley in the front yard and he says deep throat says everyone is involved and you know immediately what that means then everyone is involved that includes the president of the united states which then gives us the great final scene um and so yeah i just i i i don't know how we bounce to this from venture but yeah I, i do feel like this is a film that gave birth to Fincher's style eventually that this, this is simply a movie about continually accumulating more and more and more and louder and louder and louder bits of information until a conclusion is rendered inevitable. And there's, there's just something about that. That's that, that there's no other movie really kind of like this. I know there's other movies that have been inspired by this, uh, but I don't think there's quite another film no. like this. And, I, and then the other thing, I know you're a man on a clock. I know the, you like the, to get to your scenes quickly, but I got uh, one more thing to say. The only, one,
0: one, the only other film I would say is, and you're talking about a direct inspiration, it's almost like the writer of said film saw what Fincher could do with Zodiac and said, oh, well, we can do our our All the President's Men. It's Aaron Sorkin and Fitcher collaborating on the social network. It's the yeah. film, probably, that has come up the most on this show as a, as a, I guess, a compatible comrade in cinema, in that you're making something based off of a text. Um, you know, based off of a text so hot off the heels of a manuscript. So at the time that the events were just like on the, on the cusp yeah. of the events actually happening and then engaging with it and then creating a dialogue and then continuing now that we can sort of reflect on it 10 years later, um, continuing to be able to look at it and say relevant and actually have people say, you could have gone further which people do often say about all the president's men, you could have had, you know, they could have been more forthright. right? They could have done this. They maybe could have shown Nixon here. They could have been a little bit more blunt. And I think the art of both of those films, uh, both all the president's men and social network is they told their story. They, you know, they synthesized that information. They made it powerful and they just sort of laid it there, laid it there to sort of, to, to, you know, have this kind of, I don't know, I don't want to call it dormant power, but this continual power that, you know, no, we're going to be precise. We're going to tell our story. We're going to get in, we're going to get out. And I love what you said. We're going to slowly create the information. And unlike presidents where they they do find that the, the consolation that goes right to the top in those dots, in the social network, it is this guy this guy's morality is a problem (laughs) or or lack of morality is a problem. And it's about first you need to strip all of the uh, accoutrement, all of the, all of the debris of of the people that surround him in his life away. And then he has to stand there starkly. And we go, we've got a problem with this one tyrannical power hungry individual that is in the middle of this thing that is dominating our
1: culture. (laughs) And, to, to go back to that, that idea of it could have gone further, it, I think it's pretty perfect where uh, All the President's Men ends, just as I think the social network ending is very perfect, uh, even if I have issues with Aaron Sorkin, which we're not going to get into in this show. But uh, I uh, what I love about the ending of President's Men, which uh, I'm sure anyone listening to this would know, but on the off chance that you don't, um, you know the, the film ends with, Nixon being inaugurated for, his, uh, for the second time as president in 1972. he's won, uh, He won in a landslide. And as he's being invested with the power of, of the state for the second time and is, is arguably at his, most, at his most popular and powerful, uh, you see that in the foreground and in the background of the Washington Post office. You see Woodward and Bernstein working on the story that will eventually topple this man. Mm-hmm. and what i like about that ending is it's so in keeping with the rest of the film which is at that moment they don't know that they they still don't know that they've got him mm-hmm. i guarantee you that at that moment it has not even occurred to these two men that the the words that they are hammering onto the page in that very moment are the words that will eventually drive the most powerful man on earth from that from the office he is being reinaugurated into <laughs> in that moment and I think that is very in keeping with the film and you know what you said about the dots in the constellation it's it's these these two cubbies still hammering away not knowing if they've got it not knowing if they've got him and just continually writing into the dark hoping that that constellation will eventually be bright enough to illuminate the way forward and that's that's the that's the tone of the film in general and i think that's kind of a miracle high wire act of this film is that it works on two different levels one the dramatic engine for this film exists because we know what happens like we know what yes. happens to dixon so you know, if we didn't know that, I, I don't know if the movie would work half as well, because we're watching it stressed out because we know Nixon is is, is a corrupt <laughs> motherfucker. We know <laughs> the people around him. We know G. Gordon Liddy is the shadiest, weirdest freaking guy. And uh, we know how debased and and morally uh, bankrupt a man like uh, a Haldeman is. And so the more we see these guys digging into it, like we're getting like, Oh my God, they're getting closer. They're going to they're topple the present. They're getting closer. So there's this dramatic engine that comes from that. But the other track this film works on that is so fascinating is the movie never shows its cards in that regard. The movie never lets on that. It knows what the ending is going to be until the epigraph at the end, the movie continually acts like, well, I don't know. Is Nixon bad? Well, who knows? We don't know. Um, <laughs> And so there's that, that despite the fact that we all know what's going to happen to Nixon, the movie plays it like, Hey, maybe this is, maybe the Washington post is going to collapse because of this, because of these two, these two green reporters that got, if overeating. you guys fuck up,
0: if you guys fuck up again, I'm going to get mad.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think that that, what a miracle high wire act this film uh, 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 traipses across in that it it plays this like totally objective. Like it has no idea that these guys are going to take down Nixon. So you're watching these two reporters, maybe destroying the institution they love. (laughs) Whereas at the same time, we're sitting there with this nervous knowledge of, Oh shit, this is how it's going to happen. And you just keep waiting for the moment where it's going to finally get real. It's really going to get real. And I think I would argue that that is actually in today's scene where stuff actually gets, real in that mm-hmm. 70s conspiranoid paranoiac thriller way it, it and again which is a, a, the wildness of this film's structure is this is what uh we're Fast. six six minutes away from six, the ending minutes. of the movie yeah. six, seven, uh, uh, and it the movie doesn't turn into the parallax view styled uh paranoid 70s thriller until right now with like six minutes left <laughs> to go because it's like I said it's just that constant ramping up that's the only structure and it's only now that's in this moment uh with uh with deep throat that we're like oh shit like li- lives are in danger now
0: mm-hmm.
1: and again just what a just what a wild ass movie this is what a fascinating <laughs> uh structure this is And and again you know I I I'll take this back to what you said you called this uh pacula and robert redford's all the president's men and i think you're very very right about that and that is something that i said the first time i was on which is that while robert redford does get credit for his amazing cliff booth haircut and his uh steve (laughs) rogers good looks or or
0: does cliff booth have an amazing robert redford haircut
1: obviously obviously But, uh, you know, Redford gets credit for that. And he, he, he delivers a very wonderfully unshowy craftsmanlike uh, performance. But I don't, you know, to use, again, to use the word that I just said earlier, I don't like to use auteurist. If there's really an auteur behind this film, I would almost argue that it's auteur's producer and that's, uh, that's Redford. And how well he he did so much of the work to put this film together, including including dictating the structure that screenwriter William Goldman, Not taking take anything away from him, that, that he applied this very unusual structure that he applied to this film. And um, yeah, I, I, and now I'm beginning to talk just like that structure and I'm just, just <laughs> amping up and amping up and amping up, but we're not really sure if I'm going anywhere. But yeah, that's, you know, I, I know where I, you're I, going. I find, I find it absolutely fascinating. I know yeah. where you're
0: going. It's only happened one other time on this show, but you know what? Hmm. I'm waking you up. You're going to introduce the minute. You, let, oh, let, let, let's get you back on the saddle. Let's get you back on the saddle. Come on. Host of One Heat Minute Productions in Current Vice, Travis Woods, you know how we play this game. Would like, you like I to was, introduce people to the minute? I was like
1: Shane. I was riding off. No more guns in the valley. <laughs> I, I was done. Buddy, I was done. Get
0: your gun belt,
1: baby. Let's go. <laughs> All right. Well, let us, you and I, let's watch. Let's watch uh, the 209th minute Is that what it is? No, it's two hours and nine minutes. Two hours and nine minutes. 130th minute. 130th 130th minute. minute. See, 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 I'm rusty. I'm rusty, babies. Uh, Let's you and I dive in to the 130th minute of all the president's men. The moment, the moment where Woodward doesn't just come face to face with the truth, but for the first time violently demands the truth be given to him. No more hints, as he says. No more bullshit. The, the, the Boy Scout routine has been dropped, covered in flop sweat, desperate, terrified that he's gonna have to fall on his sword for the Washington Post, an institution he loves and is maybe destroying with these cockamamie stories that Richard Nixon uh, <laughs> uh, is, the, his, is one of the most corrupt presidents in history, which we can have a chit chat about that a little later too, about who maybe takes the cake for that now, uh, but here we are, the moment, literally, of truth in all the president's men. FBI, CIA, justice. It's incredible. Cover-up had little to do with Watergate. It was mainly to protect the covert operations. It leads everywhere. Get out your notebook. There's more. Are in danger hi i finally got Sloan on the phone
0: The beautiful symphony, a beautiful Vivaldi.
1: symphonic moment. Yeah, Vivaldi, man. Um, so, as I was saying earlier, that is the
0: most on-brand <laughs> Travis Woods thing that you've ever What's said. That? You've been What's in, that? you've been at Gordita Beach for too long. Yeah, Vivaldi, man. You, you and PTA—that's <laughs> the most PTA, Doc's Mortello. Oh boy.
1: Well, yeah. Fingus. You know, I told you, I'm tired, <laughs> man. I'm tired. Um, You know, as I was saying earlier, this is kind of this very fascinating moment in which Woodward discovers via his, his government contact deep throat, uh, your lives are in danger. Power has finally noticed you and you've become inconvenient enough to be murdered. And that's like I said, it's that, this is the moment where these two guys, uh, and now as, as, as Woodward is running into Bernstein's apartment and blasting the Vivaldi so that the, uh, w- any potential bugs there won't, won't pick up their conversation as they try to type to each other what's going on. This is the moment in the movie where they realize they're in a paranoiac, conspiranoid thriller. And what I think is so interesting is any other movie, this usually takes place in the middle of the film, whether it's Jim Garrison finding out that his office is bugged Uh, in JFK and his seven year old daughter is getting these mysterious phone calls uh, from men telling her that they're going to pick her up after school for a secret pageant. This is some scary ass shit. Or it's the moment in Zodiac in which Gyllenhaal gets a, a, a call from someone just breathing heavily on his kitchen phone. And it's the moment where two things happen. It's the moment where the main character realizes they have caught the attention of power itself, capitalized power uh, with a capital P. Power has taken notice of them. And the, the corollary to that is it would have only taken notice of them if they were a threat. And they can only be a threat if they're on the right track. And so this is the moment where Jim Garrison realizes there's something going on uh, to the murder of JFK beyond uh, a guy working at the book depository. There, this is the moment where Gillenhall realizes he's pushing deep enough into the behavior of a serial killer that he's maybe, he's maybe on the right track. And again, it's so fascinating to me that Pacula, Goldman, Redford, decided like, let's deploy that with eight minutes to go what the, or six minutes to go, whatever it is. Why not? Let's just save it. Let's just let this be our big emotional. This is kind of the climax here. This is, this is the emotional climax of the movie is, um, uh, Mark felt AKA uh deep throat, uh, AKA Hal, the wonderful Hal Holbrook, uh, just saying, Oh, by the way, your lives are in danger and that and for and what it's again it's, it's also a, a wonderful tribute to how no frills this movie is is that that line by the way your lives are in danger and then Woodward running over to Bernstein's just to type that out on a on a, a typewriter to say hey our lives are in danger while blasting Vivaldi so nothing picks it up the fact that that this film is so no frills that that suffices as an emotional climax and that it actually works (laughs) like because we're all sitting there like again we know these guys are going to live but it's that thing again where despite despite having the dramatic and narrative motor of the film be we all know that this ends with these guys beating nixon it's still operating on that other level that other track of like i don't know maybe nixon wins who knows and us going, shit, are, are we going to lose the cubbies? Are they going to get killed? Are they going <laughs> to? Is is something going to happen? But something, something scratches. To how well made this film is. Someone's something scratches for me, and
0: I know that it scratches for you as well. Whenever people go, oh, but were their lives really in danger? And I just flash back. I flash back to the beautiful streets of New York in post-war America, where a man dressed very well is speaking to an ex-old lady while she's walking a group of school children and says, my father is just like any other powerful man.
1: <laughs> oh, here we go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> who's being naive now? Okay. <laughs> who's being naive? Oh, um,
0: senators don't have people killed. Like,
1: oh, oh I'm Who's sorry. being naive? And of course, then you know, take it <laughs> back to JFK and I'm, I'm going to start sounding like a conspiracy nut, but, you know, it's hard to look... Um, at the murder of JFK and not cock an eyebrow at how many people at all the people who testified to the Warren commission, how so many of them ended up in very mysterious suicides <laughs> and, and yeah. finding themselves dead in a car pushed into a running train on the train tracks. Like, awful lot of I'm people sorry la- i'm sorry
0: to, i'm sorry to laugh i'm sorry to laugh but it is it starts to get like
1: the only response whole, is reflexive yeah. guffaw because it's like a whole lot of people <laughs> died bad and died hard after testifying to the warren oh. commission that they believed more than one person was involved in the death of the president of the united states and so when you have these two nobodies uh who are picking away at the power at one of, of one of the most corrupt uh, and emotionally unhinged presidents we had had up to that point. And again, yeah, yeah. They, they, I I certainly were in danger, especially because, and to keep jumping, I keep jumping ahead to this particular scene, uh, but it's the one where they they're talking to their publisher, uh, editor in chief Ben Bradley Uh, um, in his front yard after getting this information. And he says something, he's like, you know, the latest poll shows half of Americans don't even know what the word Watergate is. They haven't even heard of this story. And that's what makes them in danger is they're not famous enough yet to not be killed. The one thing that kept Garrison safe during the trial of JFK is it had become national news by that point. So if anything happened to Garrison, then he's dead. Or if anything happened to Garrison, then they, The killers would be dead because it would be so obvious what happened. Whereas right now, Woodward and Bernstein are still nobodies enough that, you know, if they happen to be in a car wreck on the way to talk to someone about the committee to reelect the president's strange, you know, God knows how many uh, millions of dollars slush fund. (laughs) uh, If they got in a wreck doing that, well, you know, people get in wrecks all the time in Washington, D.C. There's a lot of traffic. And so it's It's a very chilling, chilling moment um, of, of absolute kind of 70s paranoid horror right here. And I, and I do think it works because you can believe, oh, yeah, Nixon or someone, it would be the kind of thing where Nixon would not even be told. Just someone in the chain of command would look at this and, you know, more than likely a G. Gordon, a freak like G. Gordon Liddy would be like, someone, <laughs> needs, someone needs to get rid of these two. And it's it, it's it's it, and again not to keep copying lines from jfk because what a great movie that is even if it's you know i love jfk stuff. no 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 it's no. great it's, i mean if, uh, if you if, if, you, if you can watch... have
0: if you can have a 12 minute monologue from a monologue and montage with a mr x character played by donald sutherland who is a Pakula, you, know, icon, oh, I mean, it's, you know it's, 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 it's like clearly. The, 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 like if that isn't one of the greatest single sequences in american cinema i don't know what is. like just sort of dropping science about the inherent corruption and bad deeds of all of those powerful and you know uh obtuse structures that are like beneath sure. the structures well, I, mean, it's, it's, I think we can we can also
1: admit we, be, we can also admit it's a little ridiculous it's like mystery it's like Mr Smith goes to Washington on pure cocaine. <laughs> but, um which I like about that I love it. No, I love it. But, it, it, um, it is
0: but there's only one man who I would happily watch his cocaine paranoia binges. Like so, so you know, it's sure. it, Oliver Stone has got he's got that in spades.
1: <laughs> and 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 as I was saying, kind of taking from that movie, you know, it wouldn't even be that Nixon would get these guys killed. It would be as 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 it's mentioned in in JFK. You know, uh, it's it's never even said. Someone just says we'd be better off if these guys weren't around, and someone interprets that, makes a phone call to someone else, who makes a phone call to someone else and all of a sudden uh, a cuban assassin shows up and cuts uh uh, woodward's brakes and the next thing you know they're both flying out of a windshield on the way to work or to go talk to jane alexander um and so yeah it's 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 a it's a it's a definite moment of terror and again my god you should have given me the moment with bradley on his front lawn because i'm gonna keep jumping to that i love how even bradley in that moment the first thing he asks is are people did they say people's lives are in danger like he are they already sense what's coming and again, that goes back to the, the constellation. They're beginning to see what the constellation is. And now, now that they recognize that the, the North star in this constellation is Richard Milhouse Nixon, the most powerful man on earth. The, the immediate question that follows is our lives and are, they are our lives in danger. Did they say lives are in danger? And of course they did. Or of course he did. Of course Mark felt did, And, that's just again—it's the emotional climax of the movie because it proves if their lives are in danger, that only means one thing: it means they're right. Yes, it means it means they're right, uh, and so now the only thing they can do is be right without—and again, in the words of Ben Bradley, be right without getting it wrong.
0: <laughs> yes, which
1: uh, real quick, just want to say really quick. Uh, shout out to to that scene earlier in the film. It's my absolute favorite in the movie. When Ben Bradley and his two cubbies are working late at night, and they're just sitting like little kids on their desk as he's telling them stories of the old days, and he gives them that monologue about I, uh, I, you know, I got it wrong, or, or or I messed up, but I wasn't wrong. Yes. And and how that's that's the thin line they have to negotiate here is they have to both be. Lyndon right.
0: Johnson's held a press conference and appointed J. Edgar Hoover the head of the FBI for life. And he walked off stage and he talked to his man. Tell Ben Bradley, I said, "Fuck you." <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ!
1: Oh, Ben Bradley! Uh, oh, God! Imagine having Cable Hogue as your editor in chief. How cool is that? Run so, that, baby. On <laughs> that, baby. Um, I love. And again, okay, I'm going to talk about that moment one more. I love that moment for the little kid vibe that you get from Woodward and Bernstein because they're looking at Ben Bradley as the guy they eventually want to be. This, this guy who, this, this, you know, Kennedy voting. Uh, uh, speak truth to power, old school, liberal newspaper, man, and how they look at him with such adulation. They wanted to love him and how, but what I love about that is, you know, he's looking at them a little bit going, man, I wish I was still there. I wish I was still there with them. I wish I was still hungry. I wish I was that guy out there scuffing, uh, scuffing my shoes on concrete, getting the story, knocking on doors, talking to people. And I love how understated that moment is and that it it, it shows how there's this feedback loop between the two and you it's in that moment you understand why he says let's stand by the boys fuck it fuck uh it. there's some you realize he wants to be them as much as they want to be him and what a wonderful moment but okay back to the scene hand back to the scene hand let's there's, rewind
0: there, play. There, there's there's one and this is what i do i don't i'm not going to interrupt all the good things you're saying there's just one technical and formal choice that I just wanted to underscore in this moment. And I'm sure we've covered it in the previous minutes, but I just wanted to get your, your, your thoughts on it is for so, so much of how it, just the staging of oh, all of these, all of these scenes have been happening.
1: That's what I'm coming to. That's Great. What I'm coming
0: to. And, and so is, is Woodward on the left and deep throat on the right. And this is the first scene in the film where Woodward comes on the right hand side And deep throat is on the left and it's in that moment you know this whether you notice it on the first time that you watch it or whether you notice it on the 10th time that you watch it there is that subtle change that subtle power dynamic shift and whether it's the way that you read the screen and you read the page and the dissemination of information or whatever those cases may be there is something subtly going on that there is something that has changed about this interaction right now between these two men that is different from every other interaction and and it's just it's just such a subtle but phenomenal choice
1: you know this is one of the reasons why i think there's a lot of bad movies out there uh, <laughs> is <laughs> is that i and i not that i would and i'm not saying i would do any better i think it's one of the reasons I'd, i i've never wanted to be a director or anything like that is that you really have to think visually yes there's sound yes there's music yes there's there's editing this But to to be able to surely communicate ideas on a purely visual level, um, I don't think a lot of people have the actual mind for it. I just don't Mm. think that they do. And it it, it even comes to things that are super subtle or even obvious, but just the little things like this, which is every time we've met Deep Throat slash Mark Felt, he has been on camera right, and uh, Woodward has been on camera left. And in each of these meetings, Deep Throat has had, 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 he's had all of the power. He is the, well, I mean, we don't, we don't learn it in the film, but we learn it. He's the number three in, real in the life. FBI. Well, I, I mean, eventually he becomes the number two. I mean, he, yeah. he was, he, he was in line to be the, uh, he was the associate director. That's the second in command of the FBI right there. And um, he is in, he has all the power and he has all the information. He knows everything. He's holding all of the cards and you've got this cubby reporter on screen left just desperately begging him begging him for some guidance you i don't in like right. in I
0: exactitudes <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> um, and you have him on screen left and as the film becomes increasingly fraught and as the forces of power mount against woodward and bernstein as the film continues you've got you know press secretary ron ziegler talking shit about them on the the five o'clock news um, God, what, a little, what a little weasel that guy was um, But um, Ziegler is a fucking carbon copy
0: Of every Trump press secretary Well they're, they're all technically They're, they're all, wish, they're all
1: uh, Swamp swamp spawn of him They all, they all uh, wish
0: that they were Ziegler Because Ziegler yeah. was the first one Ziegler was the first one who didn't have a foothold In journalism and therefore didn't have an established Relationship with the media to therefore Control the messaging and have a great You know candid yeah. dialogue you know, he there's there's always a-
1: say he'd always say, Well, you know, the editor of the Washington Post supports the opposing party, so you no, know why. You know, you know why they're publishing. So that. in all of those encounters, yeah, uh, you've got Deep Throat on screen right, you've got Woodward well, on screen left, uh Deep Throat is always the person in power, he's always the dominant force. And Woodward is always kind of the wide-eyed puppy, just like tell me if I'm right, tell me I'm being a good boy, tell me I'm on the right track. (laughs) If I'm not on the right track, will you tell me where to go, please? Please tell me what to do. And then you have him getting scolded by, uh, you know, Deep Throat saying, you know, no, never. I'm I'm never speaking against Haldeman. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. Nope. Um, And yet, it's in this moment where Woodward, who's you know a very controlled, calm, you know. Washington Republican writer. Uh and his, uh, his, and his I, shirt's unbuttoned, I, okay. he's sweaty, his 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 hair is no I'm longer. From, I'm from it, Illinois. It's, it's, it's I'm from off. Illinois. Yeah. I'm from yeah, Illinois. The, <laughs> you know, it's just the, a sweaty pot. The, the the Midwestern boy, the Captain America vibe is gone. And he's just he's he's the lead in a 70s paranoia paranoia thriller. He is covered in sweat and he's recognizing that on this night, he's going to have to make a choice, which is, do I continue this story or do I fall on my sword for the Washington Post and destroy my career to hopefully keep the newspaper afloat? Yeah. And so that he comes to this man uh, for the first time, he comes as the aggressor, demanding information. As he says, no more hints, enough I'm tired. Of, like
0: the fact I'm tired, that of, the he, hands,
1: I'm tired of the games. I'm, like I'm tired the, of it. the
0: fact that he even says I'm tired of your chicken shit games. Yeah. Like he puts and- he puts the, the fact that it and it's in the preceding minute. So I'm sorry to sort of tread on the toes of what we've probably already discussed, but it's the inference in that moment that with all of the information and knowledge and power that he's being petty, like the the, the way that he's framing the pettiness of chicken shit and games, it's cowardly. And games that you're playing with not only me but with the American people, and my life is in danger. And yeah. you can really see how that has registered in the performance in the minute that we're talking about because Felt's entire manner in this moment is like cauterized, and he's just spouting boom, boom, boom. Yeah. And you literally watch Redford's jaw drop further <laughs> and further open. It, and, and it's not a, like a guffaw, but he's like he ends up sort of this dumbfounded looking, he's like, "Get your notebook. There's more." And it's like,
1: "Whoa." But it's also, it's a moment where he's becoming the parent a little bit. He's becoming mm. the authority figure in this conversation because he's saying to Deeper, okay, up to this point, you've given me enough crumbs to chip away and, and scare these people. Uh, but he's he's saying now, you need to make a choice. Are you all in with this or not? Like, are you are you toppling this presidency? Are you, or I don't think he was thinking of it in those terms at that point. He's like, are you going to really turn the, the floodlights on and show me what's going on? Or are we going to keep doing this, 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 these, this piddly like trick or treat shit? Like, are you going to? Are we going to do the real? Are we really going to look at this? And what I also think is interesting, you know, you mentioned the for the first time, and this is almost the this is kind of the equivalent of them breaking the 180 degree rule uh, by having them switch sides. Uh, this is also um, this is also the moment where um, there's been what two instances before this, two or three instances before this, where Woodward and um, Deep Throat have met, and um, each time they're shot at like these, these, what Redford would call, three-quarter angles. They're shot from the side, they're shot semi-profile, and the first time Woodward is almost totally ensconced in shadow, and you actually see Hal Holbrook's face. It's not—it's not brightly lit because this is a Gordy Willis uh, film, so of course well, it's going to be Prince Gordy, of Darkness.
0: It's—it's it's got Gordy Willis double lighting, which is that it's yeah. trying to shroud his face in darkness, but then it's got an eye light so that his eyes are like piercing you, um, uh, but, you know, as you're watching.
1: But what's interesting as those scenes go on, uh, up until we get to this very scene. The shadows begin to consume deep throat more and more, but mm-hmm. also the position of the camera, by the time we get to this scene, it's no longer three-quarter, it's a dead-on front-facing shot of Holbrook. Now and it is so dark in pure again, Gordy <laughs> Willis Prince of Darkness photography style. We both basically only see like the slight glint of fluorescence in Hal Holbrook's left eye and a sliver of his, like a a a um a crescent moon of his left cheek as the shadows consume him and conversely more and more of the shadows peel back from Woodward's face. By the time we get to this scene, Woodward is brightly lit and um, deep throat is almost totally consumed by shadow. But at the same time, we are staring at him directly for the first time. And Redford said that this this is this camera technique was a very conscious one. And this is again, why this is why there's so many bad movies out there because there aren't directors (laughs) and there aren't cinematographers thinking about how to communicate information to us on a purely visual level, which is truth is now staring us directly in the face, but in a way that I think would inform a film like Zodiac. Yes. When truth is staring us directly in the face, it is also never more dark and ill-defined, and we are never less sure of it than when it is looking us right in the eye and baldly telling us everything that is happening because it's almost beyond our ability to comprehend, you know, it, it's, it, it, it truly, truly is. Or at least at that time, I'm sure now we would hear that kind of news about our president. We do hear that kind of news about our president and we kind of just shrug it off and go, well, yeah, uh, he's evil. Sure. Anyway." It's a fascinating visual structure that these, these, these deep throat scenes have and the fact that it ends with Deep Throat staring at us and yet for the first time staring directly at us, the audience, and yet he is never more ambiguously seen and never, he's, he's, he's never more unclear visually than he is right here when he's finally telling us the truth. And now all of the light, all of the light and the focus. And thus I think the responsibility is now shining directly on Redford's face because now it's, it's to quote to quote a gray line from JFK at the end of Jim Garrison's speech to the jurors. It's up to you and now it's up to, it's a, it's it's up to Woodward and Bernstein they've the truth has looked at them it's been very opaque and strange and hard to read but it's looked at him it's looked them in the eyes it's it's said uh what is ostensibly believed to be the truth and then it's like the lights on you now like the spotlights on you
0: and now now it's on you to verify. That yeah. this is the case and to you know to to go on from the outer edges of this conspiracy bit by bit and follow this winding path all the way to the ascent to that north star of this constellation um and, and i think also like there's something so great about you know the more you know or you know you know the more you learn the less you know and i think in this exactly, moment
1: yeah.
0: they're learning it but i think that there's that great visual choice of underscoring that the level of complexity with, with all these deals have gone ahead it can't be immediately apparent and illuminated just in a simple like info dump. And so he's got to be there. He's got to process it. And yet the investigative legs of this thing and the proof of all those things have got to still happen. And that's why they've got a while away on those keys and tap us all the way to the beautiful sort of, I don't know, rhythmic elevated heartbeat of that
1: teletype as we watch everything go down. Um, yeah. And can we just talk for a moment? Like this, as I said, this is kind of our horror movie moment. This is the, <laughs> the voice breathing on the phone to mm-hmm. Hall and Zodiac. Um, this is the moment where someone's trying to kidnap Jim Garrison's daughter um, to get him to get off the Kennedy killing. Um, this, is, this is the horror movie moment of the film. This is, you know, this is a guy that we know as an audience, we know this guy is telling the truth, uh, telling our hero your life is in danger. They're considering killing you at this point. It would be easier. They're beginning to debate whether or not it would be easier to just murder your ass (laughs) Uh, because a you're telling the truth and B that's become an inconvenience to power. You Mm -hmm. have become a threat to power. And there is you not only just power, but the most powerful man on earth who we know is emotionally unhinged and unstable and quite dangerous. Uh, That's, that's a horror movie moment. And it's also a horror movie moment because, and this is what gets me a little sad, is it's a horror movie moment at the time because it's a horror movie moment that says the person you're supposed to trust to protect you most, he's willing to kill you if it's in his best interests. And what's so sad is how it, doesn't feel that doesn't feel like a horror movie moment in 2020 that kind of feels like where you're like well of course yeah the president would kill me if it was, in, if, it was if it was more <laughs> convenient for him and in a in, you know in a in a world in which we have a president who considered 20,000 dead or 200,000 dead to be more convenient him, more politically expedient for him uh than not you know the idea of killing two two Washington Post reporters to quell a story is kind of like, yeah, okay, and and that's our climax. That's really it. Oh, okay, shrugs. sure, shrugs. You know what's what's uh what's the what's that Twitter speak? Uh, I don't know, but uh, pop off, I guess, Woodward. I mean, if you, if you really think it, <laughs> it, it, it and off. that's 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 the shame of 2020, <laughs> really, in of our era, is that a president wanting to kill two two lowly reporters now you're just like well sure I mean our president's killed 200,000 people for reasons that aren't even particularly clear uh beyond he didn't want his feelings to get hurt he wanted to assuage an ego it wasn't even about getting in trouble uh it was just about our current president being so emotionally damaged that uh it would make him feel less bad uh, if only 20 200,000 people died as opposed to digging in and doing some work and copying uh uh copying to some ineptitude in handling a a pandemic so yeah it, it's kind of it's less a horror movie moment now or if it is if it is a horror movie moment it's a horror movie that reflects our modern horror rather than the horror of two reporters possibly getting killed it's that that but, this kind of feels like small potatoes now
0: well in in a, in a way that i don't in, think
1: it did in a preceding in,
0: in a preceding minute oh well i was just going to say absolutely in a preceding minute spoken to John Glynn, who's a friend of One Heat Minute. I call him the Chief Meme Officer. He, I think he's taken the <laughs> the abbreviation Cmo of uh, One Heat Minute Productions. And John used a phrase that we're very familiar with in crime movies and movies like Heat of like it feels very Mickey Mouse. It's like Mickey Mouse bullshit. this yeah, this level. It's for many years, this was a cautionary tale of politics gone wrong and a cautionary tale of a time gone wrong and power and this great, this great, Flux of war, of civil unrest, of economic pressures, of international upheavals, um, and this, you know, creating this perfect sort of, you know, this perfect alchemical response that said you gave too much power to too much influence to too much people, and you could, you could obfuscate weird things that you were doing much easier than potentially now. And that was kind of the reality that as we understood it and then scratching at the edges of all of, you know, of all of the established narratives that we have about American politics up until today, there've been these fringe thoughts about, you know, uh, uh you know, uh, agitators that go and mess up things like the um, Occupy Wall Street movements and you've got you know murders of uh, prominent journalists who miraculously drive themselves into telegraph poles under different administrations whether they be liberal or conservative Um, you've got these things that sort of happen along the way that start going oh hold on is is this just the way that it works and what now in 2020 is that this bold-faced yes we, our lessons from Watergate were to go harder than Nixon. We would destroy the tapes. We would <laughs> kill the reporters. We would let 200,000 people die. And the people who are lionized and the people who have been influenced by this time and these reporters or just the art of this time is the tirelessness pursuit to like push against it. Um, and, and, you know, you know, just be a little bit of light out there in the darkness. Um, and, Yet we're still in this little bit of a stalemate. Just a little bit of a stalemate.
1: Hey, can I, can I uh, go back to some Twitter speak to you for a please, minute? I, please, you're, please. You're going, you're going all heavy and philosophical. And I want to actually, I, that's usually what I do, but since you're doing it, I'm going to downshift a little bit. Uh, to, you know, to continue the Twitter speak thing, is Deep Throw a messy bitch who loves drama? <laughs> um, you know, yes. I, was, I was thinking about that today. Uh, You know, I don't know how, I mean, obviously if someone's listening to an old President's Men podcast, they probably know a thing or three about Mark Felt, the former assistant director, second in command of the FBI, who had a very tumultuous uh, relationship with Richard Nixon, who was passed over for replacing Hoover because Nixon didn't like him, didn't get along with him. Nixon saw him as the old guard. And so there's a lot of people out there. Who think that you know? You know, Mark felt once it became known that he was deep throat. Uh, you know, he and his family really tried to contextualize his choices to leak information to the Washington Post about the evil doings of the Nixon administration uh, as <laughs> as him being an American hero. Sorry, I'm still he I'm still chuckling about. He's
0: a big a messy bitch Trump. He does. Uh, you know, I, I,
1: I get away with words now That's and again. That's good. That's um, good. So you know, he tried to frame it as well. You know, his, his you know an American hero. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't stand this kind of bureaucratic corruption. And uh, which is funny because you know this is a man who was later put on trial for breaking into the homes of the Weather Underground um, and had to be pardoned by uh, by Ronald Reagan. Um, and yet, it's interesting to me the idea. I don't, you know, you know, I'm not trying to take anything away from Woodward and Bernstein, but, you know, there is this, this idea that they and the Washington, po- the Washington Post were essentially pawns in this long game of Mark Feltz, who, um, you know, uh, there's this great quote from a political scientist, uh, George Friedman, who said, you know, the Washington, the Washington Post created a morality play about an out of control government brought to heel by two young enterprising journalists and a courageous newspaper. That simply wasn't what happened. Instead, it was about the FBI using the Washington Post to leak information to destroy the president and the Washington Post willingly serving as the conduit for that information while withholding an essential dimension of the story by concealing Deep Throat's identity. And as to to what the truth is, it's probably somewhere in between. But I, I And I don't really know if I'm going anywhere with this, so you, Mr. Host, might have to do something with it. But I do like the idea, and there is something that feels very Trump administration-like to me about that, that the person who actually helps save democracy is not doing it because they give a shit about democracy and the First Amendment. I really don't think anyone in the FBI probably gives two shits about the First Amendment. Uh, it's about being a messy bitch who <laughs> loves drama and has decided that that when you when he when Mark Felt found out the boss man wasn't going to promote him to replace Hoover was just like well fuck it you know i'm you know i'm going to help bring him down and that there's something very trump administration I, like about that to me about I, it's it's not about the heroism it's not about saving america i do think that you know woodward and Bernstein i think it's
0: are, i think it's i think it's six one way, half dozen the other i don't like absolutes <laughs> in that i, I because yeah. i think i think people get motivated by those things but also it's like there is a real relationship dimension that can be impenetrable especially in a corporate landscape now I used to be in a corporate landscape and I'm not anymore. If you are in a corporate landscape, the fucking relationships are everything. There are egos and there are impenetrable relationships. And if someone doesn't like you, you're fucked. If they're in the right position of power and you report to them and you can't sort of get yourself farther enough away from them until they move the fuck on and move the fuck up or get the hell out, you're screwed. Like, cause there are certain pivotal people that you need to have a great relationship with And what I always think, and that is what is kind of like definitely part of politics and definitely part of corporate is what happens is if you are slighted by an individual, you see the way that they work, it can sometimes render a level of transparency, removing any kind of rose colored glasses you have for everything about that institution. You can look at it and go, this whole fucking thing is just a circle jerk, of egos and horseshit. No one actually wants to fucking do anything. No one actually wants to pursue anything. Everything that these people are saying is to keep themselves employed. Hmm. That is all they're doing. So, in politics, even more so, you only have to look at people in the Conservative Party of the United States whose values are pretty, pretty stringent. They're pretty clear. Like, in fact, they're quite candid. You know they've got very staunch beliefs when it comes to, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, especially you know children and 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 women's right to choose based around their religion. They're usually very religious and conservatism is religious and fiscal. And then you've seen those people abandon all of that morality that is taught in the books that they they study every week or every day. Because the power grab of the kind of egomaniacal Trumpism is around and they've just got to kind of speak that language to help spruik that base. And so I think I, yes, definitely would agree that there is some messy bitch who loves drama stuff, but also if you had been going through with, with presidency after presidency and a certain level of conduct that you thought was happening around a president and the way that they were managing themselves and doing those sorts of things, you would sort of have an appreciation for the office, but he got there and then started to see that Nixon was starting to treat his own little personal slush fund for political espionage and then telling his intelligence agencies who are actually built and designed to stop political espionage from happening in this country or to exact political espionage in other countries like the uh, CIA do. And then you're being told not to do anything about it. I totally get why he's like, yeah, I'm a messy bitch. And I think that, we need to like have our, we need our messy bitches. We need to have the people who are disgruntled and insiders protected. And so I I, I think it's six, one way half dozen the other when I look at him in, in, in the context of history. Because obviously if you're in that institution, you are going to do things and disrupt different, you know, whether they're peaceful or whatever, these like disrupting forces. As a part of the FBI, you're going to do effed up stuff. That's just part of the morality. Some stuff you're going to do to save people and protect people, other stuff is effed up. But I kind of like that if you get a window into who Nixon is and you see what he's doing and that incentivizes you to speak, that's good. And I don't think it, the onus is on the Washington Post to worry about the motivations of that person. The onus on the Washington Post is to tell the truth.
1: And yeah. No, I, I, I don't disagree. I, I, I just uh, I like the idea though that I do like the idea of of deep throat as a messy bitch who loves drama. Oh, I love it! Because I think it love it, it too. Just like the scene that we're we're talking about today, where where he is so ensconced in shadow that he's no longer even purely visible. That it's just one more layer of what can we trust? What can we? What can we use? What can we trust? What is real? What is lie? What is fiction? What is truth? What is nonfiction? What is reality? And the fact that we can't even trust that this is someone, a law abiding patriot, you know, fighting the good fight, and it might just be someone with an axe to grind, you know, Mm -hmm. someone with a grudge against the president, is it's all it, 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 it again when you pretend like you don't know how this ends it makes the story all the more terrifying because you can't how can you trust this this conduit of information if if it's complicated by the idea that well this is someone who's just this is a disgruntled employee yeah so that thus it just it just adds that that level of opacity and ambiguity but back to the story but, that i love
0: i love it too and it happens with every person you've got Jane Alexander's bookkeeper allegiances towards Hugh Sloan. You got Hugh Sloan in amongst, you know, I mean, Hugh Sloan looks like a saint compared to John Mitchell, but Hugh Sloan, I've called him slippery Hugh Sloan for a reason. I think he's a slippery mofo. Um, You know, he's, he's protecting himself and absolutely um, and, and where possible, only saying what he's directly asked to continue to protect himself, to say, I'm not going to lie, but I'm also not going to be completely candid with the truth. Um, and you just have to look at that happening all across the spectrum, and you start to, you know, the bookends of history start to show big turning points where people just feel compelled, like, all right, well, I'm caught anyway, so I may as well tell you, and they just sort of drop everything. Um, but in a, in and I point to and I point to Bradley. You pointed to it before, which I think has got a great poetry to it. I made a mistake, what, but, but I, 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 wasn't I wasn't wrong. wrong.
1: And what can you do when you're faced with that kind of ambiguity? What can you do when you have a shadowy man in a garage telling you these, these terrifying truths, what can you do, but rely upon the craft and the process to save you. And this like a Fincher film, as I was saying, you know, all the president's men is a craft and process movie. It's about the shoe leather. And what that's why I love, and it's something we haven't talked about a lot, but, um, the second half of this minute is Woodward crashing into Bernstein's apartment, immediately holding a finger to his lips when Bernstein starts to talk, running over, throwing on the Vivaldi, which is like the loudest thing in this movie, aside from the hammers of typewriter keys, uh, slapping a page. Uh, and immediately, and this this is going to tickle into the next scene, I know, so I won't dive too deep into it, but Woodward immediately goes to Bernstein's typewriter, his, his weapon, uh, and... Um, he starts typing out, you know, Deep Throat says our lives are in danger and it's a little moment, but I love it because what is he doing? He's going back to the writing. He's sitting <laughs> down at a typewriter to communicate ideas and print, which is all they have. And he, it, to me, I felt like that was a nice little visual metaphor, a way of showing that all these guys can do is rely on the, their craft and rely on the process to save them and get them out of this is to write their way out is to write what they know to write what they know and hope that the person and people uh, who is on the receiving end, who is reading it will make right decisions and will be based on that level of information based on being informed. And in this moment, it's just writing a note saying, Hey, we're in danger. Uh, But I think that's a, it's a, Broad metaphor for what they do, which is, again, I'll say I'll repeat myself. Anyone who listens to Increment Vice knows I'll do that. Uh, it's just we—they've got to rely on the craft, they've got to rely on the process, and they've got to hope that the words they type are the right ones and that will be read the right way and will lead them out of this mess. And I thought that was a just a lovely way to follow up the deep throat scene, which is terrifying, which is to follow it up with the only thing that two writers can do and faced with when faced with that kind of knowledge is, well, we better write this down. We better, we better report this even if it's uh, to each other. And that's just, so what a great, what a great, what a great idea of novel visual simplicity that is. And it's, it's, it's just one of the myriad of reasons why uh, this is absolutely perfect. Absolutely. Well, perfect movie.
0: well, when this man said he was riding off into the sunset, he wasn't going to do this anymore. I thought, how do i get him back well i get him back to the process i get him back to the process (laughs) what happens when two podcasters get back together we podcast we go back to the process to drag him out he may seem tired but you know what 2020 is going to end my brother and we're going (laughs) to drag him out of it back with podcasting he did he did dance into the next moment just ever so slightly and I'm and I rarely do this but I can do it because it's already recorded he's dancing on the toes of two other writers he's dancing on the toes of one Liz Hanna and one academy award-winning Josh Singer
1: co-writers of the post
0: co-writers of the post Josh wrote spotlight Liz Hanna um wrote long shot which uh, I deeply love, um, which also has its uh, Republican double take moment between uh, O'Shea Jackson Jr. and Seth Rogen, which is hilarious. Um, oh, that's such a and, cute movie. Oh, it's yeah, so great. Uh, uh,
1: and oh, so, listen, listen to me, my God, that's such a cute movie. But it
0: is. Uh, it, is I love it, it is a cute movie. Um, and so you can dance into that minute because those two writers were the guests that I chose to watch two writers. Uh, agonize over a typewriter uh, for the next 60 seconds in one of the climactic. Yeah, that's not, the bad. that's not bad. Travis Woods, thank you so much again for being a partner in crime and a partner in inherent vice and increment vice and a partner on One Heat Meter Productions and back again to talk to me about this perfect movie that at the beginning of this project you kind of were puzzled by, but I think the more that you watched it, you're like, oh, I think I understand why why this guy likes this thing. <laughs> Thank you so much I for do. being a part of the show again. I I cannot thank well, you enough.
1: Well, thank you for having me on. Thank you for letting me talk about Point Break <laughs> and uh, and the Terminator, which is it is it is it's the greatest love love story ever told. Um, and you know that to be true. Everyone out there listening knows that too. Uh, and for letting me talk about how um, Johnny Utah it's, and should uh, uh, uh,
0: shag. Uh, yeah, and I, and I, and and ask the most important question, perhaps, of the entire show. With Vivaldi blasting, is Deep Throat a messy bitch
1: who loves drama? You know, I've given... I've, I know you wanted that to be your last line of the show, I know. But, uh, you know, I'm just sitting here in horror realizing that, uh, you know, I thought we've... I think we've had some nice discourse here. We've, we batted around some really deep ideas. But I know that when you post this on Twitter, it's just going to be, uh, Travis Woods muses, is Deep Throat a messy bitch who loves drama? It's going to be reduced just to that. But I, I made my bed and now I got to sleep in it, I guess, because... like like deep like deep throat, i am we're gonna
0: we're gonna drag him in with the blurb and then we're gonna give them more than an hour of incredibly insightful discourse and discussion about one of the most climactic moments of this entire riveting and infinitely rewatchable masterpiece
1: bitches and death threats man
0: That was my great friend Travis Woods. Just when he thought he was out, I pulled him back in. Uh, if you want to follow Travis, the best place to find him is on Twitter. It's at a heart of guilt um, on Twitter. You can find him. You'll see me interacting with him and 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 vice versa all the time, basically on there. If you want to follow him on Bright Wall Dark Room, you can just look him up. He's got some great pieces there. He also has a link on his Twitter bio to those individual pieces. If you want to follow his incredible podcast and One Heat Meter Production increment vice you can go to incrementvice.com or you can just f- track along in this feed you can find all 45 episodes there some incredible guests drew mcweeney walter chaw ryan johnson megan abbott holy shamoly get amongst that um more from travis i'm sure uh, in upcoming projects for one heat minute thank you all for listening at ATPM Pod uh, on twitter is where you can find us at one blake minute is where you can find me at oneheatminute.com is where you can find our site and all the projects that we do Looking forward to talking to you soon. Another episode in the next day.